Our guest today is Aidan Gomez. Aidan is one of the world-leading AI researchers and entrepreneurs. In fact, Aidan is one of the researchers behind the original Transformer Neural Network paper, which has proven the most impactful innovation in neural nets, really all of AI, in the past 10 years. Transformers are now used for natural language processing, computer vision, speech recognition, protein folding, and the list goes on. In 2019, Aiden started writing on the wall in what AI will enable in language and founded Cohere, which is building the tools and APIs to make natural language processing part of every developer's toolkit. And I'm personally lucky enough to be a small investor into Cohere. Aiden, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Peter. Great to be here. So glad to have you here. Now, Aidan, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, FinTech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all, of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. Aiden first time we met was 2018. You were applying for PhD programs after already having written the Transformer paper, the most influential research paper in AI of the past 10 years. And I'm hoping to learn more about the story behind that paper a bit later in our conversation here. But first, let's talk about what you're up to right now. You are co-founder and CEO of Cohere, working on large language models. What are large language models and what are they capable of? Well, first off, thanks so much for having me on. And uh, you have some great sponsors, particularly Index Ventures, which also invested in Cohere. So huge shout out to Mike Volpe and the whole team. Yeah, so in terms of what the Transformer is and what is this generation of language model that we're starting to see power applications like GPT-3, Cohere's models, ChatGPT, the basic principle is... By scaling up models, we've started to be able to model much more complex data sets. And obviously, the most complex data set is going to be something that looks like the internet, this huge corpus of text, which has been compiled over now decades. And we've onboarded something like 60-70% of the entire human population into contributing to this data set. And so you see a really diverse set of behaviors, right? Like there's humans teaching each other how to code, teaching each other to speak different languages, uh, discussing world events, and everything in between. And so you have this enormous, highly diverse data set. And to model that, you need an enormous, extremely complex model. Uh, and so that's where transformers fit into this. So they're a, a neural network architecture, which is really just a structure uh, to a model. And they happen to be very, very good at scaling up. They're very easy to parallelize, which is important when you're training on these big supercomputers with uh, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of accelerators, GPUs. And so what we've seen is 
as you scale up both the model and the data set, you start to see some really fascinating behavior. Like the models become, as OpenAI puts it, you know, multitasking masters. The same model, the same set of weights is capable of doing a pretty good job at everything from translation to stuff that's as simple as like entity extraction, like pulling out names in a contract, all the way over to writing blog posts or articles. And so there's this huge breadth of capability. And what we've seen recently is that the technology, like we've gotten much better at making it useful, making it intuitive to use. And we've done that by basically creating models that we call command models, that OpenAI calls instruct models, models that you can ostensibly talk to, to get it to do what you want. And so what most people would recognize as large language models today, it's really those models that you can give a natural language instruction, do this for me. And it outputs the result. Yeah, that's a super quick summary of LLMs. Of course, they caught a lot of headlines in recent months. Um, and one of the headlines that stood out to me was that New York State was uh, forbidding students from from using them for their homework. Now, is that a way to let all the students know there is this thing that could help you with your homework? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it also shows how capable these models are, right? That they really could actually do homework. They could actually... I saw a headline that one of the models took Wharton MBA exam and got a passing grade. Yeah, no, they're, they're extraordinarily capable. I think uh, definitely right now, the different institutions are trying to reconcile how to adapt in light of the presence of models that can do some really compelling, very intelligent activities like passing knowledge-based exams or crafting really compelling essays. But I think this is like a really obviously useful tool and trying to prevent people from using a tool. Probably the wrong way to go about things. I'm much more interested in how do we adapt to the tool? How do we help use it? How do we help students learn how to use a tool? Uh, how do we get students to augment their learning process with the tool? I think a collaborative or augmentative approach is probably the right one as opposed to trying to say, no, you're not allowed to use that calculator. No, you're not allowed to use Google search for this uh, essay that you're writing. It's much more about changing what you ask for from the student so that they have to learn the material in order to be productive. Going back to the models themselves, the original models, as I understand it, essentially were trained on text on the internet. You collect some text from the internet and train a next word or a next token prediction model. And from that, it learns how to generate responses and completions and and so forth now the challenge of course is that not all text on the internet is high quality or even maybe that not everybody wants the same thing and so forth so i'm curious how do you go from the kind of naive thing of just training a model on as much text on the internet as possible to ending up with a model that is more incarnated than what you actually would want um you're totally right there's like loads of noise on the internet uh, a lot of stuff that can actually do more harm to learning and good. And so filtration is, of course, like a huge part of the data processing pipeline. You're cutting out noise, um, you're cutting out empty strings or extremely repetitive strings, that type of thing, so that your data set is as clean as you possibly can. Obviously, at the scale of the internet, noise gets in. Like, no matter how sophisticated your filters are, you're still going to get some percentage of noise, and the job is really to minimize that. But I think it's the, it's what happens after you've trained on the web that really unlocks the utility and the user experience that you want with these models. So first you train a huge model on 
ton of web pages scraped from the web, hopefully cleaned up a bit. But the next thing you do is you're going to fine tune that model on an extremely hand curated, um, very refined data set. And so that big initial model, it's very knowledgeable. It's picked up a ton of different things from all over the web. And what you're trying to do is you're really, you're really steering it towards the type of model that you want. You don't need a ton of data if this original model required uh, a trillion you know, words from the web. This subsequent fine-tuning phase can be many, 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 many orders of magnitude smaller. Um, the important thing is that it expresses the behavior that you want to see in the model. So for instance, with our command models, similar to OpenAI's instruct models, the behavior that we're trying to elicit is given some natural English command, some natural English instruction to the model. You want the model to respond in an intuitive, correct way. So if I ask it to write a blog post in an excited tone, you want it to do that. And so you include those in the data set. You include examples that look like that in the data set, and you steer this big, very knowledgeable model towards one that can now intuitively be controlled. Similarly, with the chat GPT or like dialogue models, you're doing the same thing. So you're taking a uh, extremely knowledgeable, very capable model, and you're showing it a small, very refined data set of the type of behavior that you want. In that case, it's a dialogue model. And so you're going to show it a lot of rich conversations. And the model just adapts in, in terms of the data set that you show it. Yeah, so there's kind of this two, three phase training process where initially it's the big, messy data set. After that, you get more and more refined and um, more towards the type of model that you, you set up to build. This is really interesting that the fine tuning can happen on such a significantly smaller data set, so you don't need to curate as carefully, as much data. In the very last phase, of course, a user is interacting with the model and by just talking, well, typing with it, which is really intriguing to me because most AI systems out there aren't as easy to interact with, right? I mean, they might be doing things in the background, they might be checking credit card for all kinds of things, but the language models have the most natural interface of all, converse with them. And as I understand, these models have state based on what the user has said and can have a long running conversation, but they can also have a, a hidden prompt that you at Cohere always pre-append to kind of somehow set it in the right set of mind, or I don't know how to exactly describe it, but somehow get in the right state of mind as it is generating responses. What do you think about this prompt engineering and the importance, and what do you see in the future of that? I think that's like one of the vectors we have to steer the model and guide its behavior. And so what we were just chatting about, what I, what I just described with the fine-tuning on a small refined data set. It's one example of like steering your model using data. Prompt engineering, as you, as you point out, this is another way. And so in your prompt, in the instruction that you give to the model, you can specify particular behaviors or tones or that type of thing. And you can also offer demonstrations, right? You can say, hey, I want you to write a blog post about X uh, in the same tone as the blog post below. And you give an example of a blog post, it can extract the tone from that and then write the blog post about X like you asked. So that's called few-shot prompting where you're giving, you're giving demonstrations um, of the behavior you want to see from the model. So yeah, I, I, hope that, I hope that prompting goes away. I hope <laughs> that it's rendered unnecessary. It feels a bit like a dark art. 
I really like some of the analogies that came out early on with large language models uh-huh. about like it was essentially an alien technology and we need to learn how to speak to it. And it was really Can difficult. Have- it was really difficult. You had to like uh, essentially reverse engineer the language that it had learned from the web, which is brutal, extremely laborious. And I think as we get more and more capable models, as that subsequent fine-tuning phase becomes more and more refined, uh, my hope is at least that that becomes less necessary. Your ability to speak a special language or you know, know the model, it becomes less and less of a burden or an advantage. People have, like even internally at Cohere, different models have different personalities. Like they just emerge. And I mean personality in the sense of if you want it to get, if you want to get the behavior out of it, that you intend, you have to learn how to speak to it. And so a model trained on week X and week X plus three uh, might have very different, might have a very different language that you need to learn. Um, and that's painful and annoying because it means every time you update the model, you're having to like readjust your internal representation of how to speak to that model. So my hope, and I think the hope of like broadly across the field, a lot of large language model builders is it's our job to make that less and less of a feature. Yeah, I mean, ideally, it would just converse in the maximally natural way, just humans who are very good at understanding others, collaborating, it would hopefully achieve that level, right? Like, amazing collaborator that just understands you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's it's amazing that it's happening now, but it's been such a tragedy that humans' primary modality for information sharing and intelligence, like dialogue, conversation, has been so unachievable or inaccessible for technology. So I think like large language models unlocking dialogue as an interface for technology is just a total diff- like it's a total change in the fabric of what can be built. It's an interface level change. Yeah, we live in like a really exciting time. I agree. Now, one of the things people often talk about is that to train a large language model and we know that typically have to be large to to be really good um, requires a lot of compute. Having a lot of compute can require lot of resources, a lot of money to pay for that compute. Is that still the case today? Is it still expensive to train a state-of-the-art large language model? Yeah, unfortunately it is. It's expensive in a few different ways. The compute is definitely a very large line item in expense, but also in terms of like talent and, and knowledge and finding the people who know how to build these models. So part of like the founding motive for Cohere for Nick, Ivan, and I, it was about really lowering that barrier to access. It shouldn't be just be the folks who can, you know, raise a fifty, hundred million dollar seed or Series A, who are able to build with these models, incorporate them into the products that they want to build. It, it should be everyone. So yeah, that, that's definitely been a huge barrier and something that we're trying to solve at Cohere by making it much more economic. Us fronting, uh, us footing the cost for that computer, for for the talent, for the data acquisition, et cetera, et cetera and amortizing it across like a wide swath of users, really just trying to make it more accessible. Talking about users, um, I'm curious, who do you see use Cohere? What are the use cases? Are there commercial use cases? So in terms of like technology adoption, we're still early in the curve. Like I think we hit some sort of breakthrough thanks to ChatGPT with broad public awareness. But on the adoption curve, uh, it's still... It's still early. And so, as is typical with emerging technologies, the first folks to start to adopt it are students, hackers, startup founders. And so this first wave of applications, 
uh, and certainly the majority of Cohere's users, they fit into those categories. I think what we're seeing now is every single executive inside of a large enterprise is asking themselves, what is ChatGPT? What are these large language models? And you know, how can I make use of them? And so that conversation has just been started in the past few months. And I expect that 2023 and 2024 is going to be all about deployment inside large applications, existing large enterprises, existing large products. I think it'll span every single industry. Um, but the next two years, the next 24 months, we're starting to head into the large-scale adoption phase. If I'm trying to make this a bit more concrete, is it fair to say, I mean, I don't know if it's been done or not, but I'm curious about your, your take, status, and, and what's possible. If you're a large company, you might have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people working at your company, having conversations on Slack, on email, on everything, all this internal documentation that's being written, could you fine-tune the Cohere model, let's say, on all of that, and then have this model that knows everything in the company. You can ask anything, and it'll just know. And it'll have the answer. Yeah, so I think that's what we're heading towards, is like an, ex an assistant for interacting with large-scale knowledge bases. Speaking from Cohere's side, I, I don't think we're there yet, um, but it's very close. Like, it's now uh, within sight. Certainly in academia, people have been pressing on this for a long time. And projects like Retrieval Augmented Generation uh, and Retro certainly point towards something that looks like this. The ability to have some external knowledge base, which is you know updated in the same way any database is updated, very, very fast, always kept up to date, um, very quick to retrieve from, and to ostensibly just give a model access to that database. It can query it. Uh, it can compose queries and retrieve documents, use those documents as part of its response. And so we're starting to see the pieces come together to support applications exactly like that. Um, you can imagine you can imagine a system where, like me as a consumer, I can log in, I can connect my Twitter, my Slack, my Discord, my Gmail, my Docs, and all of a sudden it has access to all of that and you can retrieve from it. And I can ask it to get information for me about that. I can ask questions of my life that is streaming through these different media. And then subsequently, I can ask it to take action on that media. I can ask it to send an email to so-and-so. I can ask it to um, purchase something from Amazon. So I think we're getting very close, and it's certainly within sight that we can build these systems that have access to massive, maintained knowledge bases, personal ones, and then also that they're able to use tools and take action and actually affect change. Well, I'm really intrigued by that. I'm also very intrigued, especially by the second part, knowing I work in <laughs> reinforcement learning where agents make decisions, take action and so forth. You said the systems won't just maybe respond with text, but actually go do things. Are there specific things that you foresee happen in the near future that the systems could go do? Yeah, so I, I think certainly for communication, I think one of the highest value applications of a system like this might be stuff like customer support where you need to reset a password or you need to redirect a package to somewhere where the agent has to be able to take action to resolve that user's query those are some of the some of the actions that we we expect to see supported first um, later on and i think the most interesting is we've built all these tools for ourselves right like um you and i right now are talking on video chat 
a video chat is inside of a browser. What happens if we give these models the ability to control a browser or use a browser as a tool? At that point, the model can basically carry out any task that I could on a browser, which is a huge swath of like the desirable things I want to get done. And so the utility there, I think, is, is massive. Obviously, controlling a browser and navigating the web is much more difficult than calling discrete APIs that you specify and that are known. The web is a much more unstructured and, and variable place. But I think that's one of the most exciting projects that are currently on the docket. That's really exciting. Now, one of the things that's very clear from everything you're saying, and, and I agree, is that the opportunity is so big to, for this kind of technology to help us in our lives, work lives, recreation, and so forth. That also means it's a very active space, not just Cohere is in the space, many other players. Um, I believe you're actually were the first large language models focused startup back when you founded Cohere in 2019. Of course, it was already OpenAI, um, you know, which is doing a lot of things, including large language models. Um, but since Cohere has been founded, there's been quite a number of large language model startups that have emerged, including Anthropic with folks who, who left OpenAI, Character.ai, folks who left Google, um, Adept, also folks who left Google, and many of these raising $100 million and more in funding to to start this these companies. And then, of course, there's the big companies like Google, Meta, Amazon, DeepMind, who also have a lot of resources and work on large language models. So there's a big landscape of various efforts. So I'm curious, how, how do you see all these efforts relate to each other, compete with each other? What's going to happen? Yeah, so I think it's super exciting. that The technology is fundamental. And so, A, like a lot of very smart people want to work on it, which is super exciting to see. And B, there are tons of applications. Languages general can be applied all over the place. And so we're starting to see a diverse set of products pop up. My, my general sense of where does this go is that language is such a diverse modality. There's so much space to provide value there. While there's many players who are building large language models from startups to the largest enterprises in the world, the space of possible products and offerings on top of large language models is virtually endless. Um, and that's core to Cohere's thesis, right? Which is to provide a platform so that everyone can build off of them. Everyone can build new products. Uh, you don't need to raise those $100 million rounds in order to compete and play. So I think the end state is that there's a bunch of players. There's a bunch of fantastic new pro products that come out of this effort. And hopefully, hopefully the surface area of tech changes very quickly. I mean, what you're describing reminds me of this tweet by Andre Karpathy recently who said, the hottest new programming language is English. Yeah, yeah. No, that is very, uh, it's a good summary of what's happening. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah, I saw a paper come out recently. I don't know if it was today or, or yesterday. Did you see it? The uh, like loop transformers, like coming up with some generic programming strategy for just feeding transformer outputs into itself recursively. I, I think it's fascinating. Stuff like Langchain as well, where you, you compose calls and you, you set up loops and logic. There's an ecosystem emerging on the backs of these models or multiplying their utility through repeated action with them. I also saw at Scales Hackathon, there was like a project which just had one component was the UI and the entire backend of, of the app was just calls to a large language model. And so the huh. entire backend stack was ripped out 
and replaced with <laughs> conversing with a model. Just, yeah, a really extraordinary trajectory. I mean, that feels really, really compute inefficient, to be honest. Uh, there, there's got to be better ways. There's got to be better ways to do it. But the, the concept of look at how much we can rip out and replace with a large language model, I think that's just so, it's so inspiring. One thing, of course, with language is that not everybody speaks the same language. There's a lot of languages in the world. And recently, Cohere has launched a multilingual text understanding model. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, this is something that we're super, super excited about. So we released a, um, it's not like a generative model like GPT or uh, ChatGPT or our command model. Um, it's a representation representation model, so much more similar to BERT, um, the models that you use to do classification or to do semantic search. And this particular one, the project was led by Nils Reimer and it incorporates 109 languages. Um, and the training scheme is, is pretty interesting. Um, traditionally, as you know, in translation systems or multilingual systems, what you have to do is you come up with pairs of examples. And it needs to be the same semantic content, one in language A and one in language B. And for some languages, there's tons of pairs available. You, you get a lot of different examples of that. And so your model becomes very good at, let's say, translating between English and French because those two appear together in Canada all the time, the same sequences. But for other pairs of languages, let's say like Kiswahili and uh, Korean, there are less pairs of these naturally fitted together. Um, so what the team did uh, was, first off, focus on scraping an extremely large, diverse data set in the same way that we talked about the beginning of our conversations for large language models, but no pairs, right? Just unsupervised, tons of text. And then collect all the paired data that you possibly can and use that much smaller set of paired data to align the representations in different languages. And by doing that with the limited data that you have, you get a model that's cross-lingual that can support, I believe the list is 100, 109 different languages in a really robust way. And so that opens up new possibilities for classification. If you build a classifier in English, and let's say, like, let's just use me as an example. Uh, let's say that I'm a developer. I speak English. Uh, that's the only language I can speak. And I develop on Cohere classifier by giving it some training examples. This English sentence is positive. This English sentence is negative. I can take that classifier and it now maps onto every language, all 109 of them. So it doesn't matter what user, what language my user is speaking to me in. I can still provide robust classifications. Similarly on the search side, in retrieving information. Um, if I speak English, but I want to perform a search over a very multilingual set of data and retrieve all the relevant documents, I now only need to search in English, and I'm going to retrieve all of the different relevant documents regardless of their language. Um, so yeah, I think it's like super cool uh, piece of tech. It's fascinating that these things are, are even possible. Just, you know, 20, 30 years ago, machine translation felt like a pipe dream attempts, but nothing was all that good. And now across 109 languages, it's with a lot of the languages not having paired data. It's, it's amazing. Another thing that stood out to me when I was 
doing my background research for our conversation today, um, I was reminded that Cohere actually also started a nonprofit research lab. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's Cohere for AI, which is run by Sarah Hooker. And it like it's one of my favorite pieces of the entire the entire company. It's a separate non-for-profit. And the the principle is inspired by the original Cohere. So before I started sorry, the original for AI, uh, before I started Cohere, my now co-founder, then friend, Ivan and I, uh, along with a bunch of others, we started this little research group. And at that time, I had just come back from Google after uh, writing the, the Transformer paper. And I was back in Toronto. I was back at U of T. I had all of these research ideas that I wanted to pursue, um, but I didn't really have anyone to do it with. And so I messaged in the U of T CS Slack. Hey, uh, I really want to do ML research. Is anyone down? And Ivan got back to me along with a bunch of other folks, Brian, others. And we formed this little team, like AI research team. And we spent the entire summer just hacking together on this project, uh, which later got published at ICLR. And then after that, we were like, okay, we want to scale this. There's got to be a lot of other undergrads or even folks in grad school or out of school who don't have access to folks to collaborate with. And so we threw up a little web page. We started just kind of talking about the work that we do. And it grew to, I don't know how many countries, but I think like 15 or 18 countries, 80 folks across them. And then when Ivan and I started Cohere, we couldn't spend as much time on 4AI. And so it started to go dormant, go silent. The community started to vibrancy went down um and then i was chatting with with sarah uh, at the time she was at brain um she's been like such a huge advocate of access uh, and mentorship within machine learning we both just got really excited about this idea of having cohere support an independent nonprofit that is squarely focused on a uh, putting out really good research and b providing routes into AI or machine learning research for folks who they just don't have them. And so really opening up new doors, opening up new opportunities, uh, bringing in a set of mentors to help those individuals get their first project, get their first paper out uh, and break in to the ML community. So I was ecstatic when, you know, we finally actually made it happen and started it. And now we have the, the scholars program as well as uh, research residencies inside uh, Cohere 4AI. Yeah, it's a very, very exciting, exciting project. It's beautiful. I can definitely see that. I mean, the impact it's going to have already has had on people. Um, I kind of wonder though, I mean, how does that board meeting go? You're still a startup and you're saying, we're going to allocate this much money now to support a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. I'm lucky that I have extremely, extremely um, great board members. So Mike and Jordan have been really supportive of us really trying to bring this technology to the market in the right way, um, not taking shortcuts, not um, not pushing us to make decisions that we think are bad for the long run. And even when we make decisions like funding an independent non-for-profit, they take a very holistic approach to it. So I'm just extremely fortunate that I'm so well supported. 
I'm curious, going back to your Google days, the attention is all you need paper. That's the title of the paper that um, introduced the transformer architecture as, well, the one that's essentially overtaken all of AI in the last, not yet 10 years, but, you know, five plus years. <laughs> and trend seems to just continue. I'm curious, when you're working on that paper, how was that? How, you know, what did you think about what you were doing? Did you... Pre- predict its its impact was it did it feel to you like wow this is amazing this is different what was it like yeah so i guess the first thing to say is that i was the intern uh or like the baby on the project i showed up in mountain view and i thought i was going to be working on something very different and uh it just happened that i was plopped down next to noam and lukash was my my intern manager and we were working on this this platform for training big autoregressive uh, models on on distributed compute. And Lukash convinced Noam to come start working on Tensor to Tensor, which was our platform. And then we found out that there was a group over in Translate led by Jakob uh, Uskreit, which was, was focused on something very similar to what Noam was thinking, like a pure attentional model. And in the span of my internship, those 12 weeks, the whole group consolidated on tensor to tensor, just started super rapid architecture and hyperparameter, you know, tuning and optimization. And within 12 weeks, we submitted to NURPS and got the paper out. And I, I, in terms of like the foresight on impact, you'd have to ask the other authors on, on what they thought. But I, I did have one or two, one or two interactions. So I, I know at least two folks saw the impact. I'm not one of them. I, I thought it was normal. You know, this was like the first paper that I was putting out, I'm like, yeah, no, you just increase blue score on WMT by two points, whatever it was, five points. Sure. You know, this is research. We did it. <laughs> Next. Um, <laughs> but the night we were submitting to NeurIPS, I remember uh, it was like 2 a.m. or something. We had just submitted. And the only folks left in the office were Ashish and I. And I think I was laying on the couch. Ashish was sitting next to me, exhausted. And... He was like, dude, you know, this is this is gonna be a really big deal. And I just like looked at him and was like, What? Why? Like, what do you mean? He's like, I, I don't know. I just this is a big deal. Um, and I, I just kind of brushed it off and I was like, Yeah, maybe. Sure. Uh, went off and, and slept. And then, you know, a few months later, the research community just really consolidated on this architecture. Like, I think most of the Transform Paper co-authors, I think we all feel like if we didn't do it, things were pointing in this direction. Um, there was work by Aaron at DeepMind and Vandenord that was, you know, ByteNet uh, and PixelCNN and WaveNet that looked a lot like this. And so things were pointing in this direction. But I think the majority of us were very shocked by, by its adoption and its popularity. Obviously, pleasantly surprised but i think for most of us it was certainly certainly for me it was a surprise it's it's far apart that's interesting it's your first paper and <laughs> it's hard to write another paper after that and live up to yeah that's why, that's why i got out of research as quickly as quickly as possible <laughs> yeah yeah now the transformer architecture completely changed the field and the kind of things that are possible it seems to just absorb things from data more easily, larger amounts of data can be absorbed. Um, looking ahead, do you expect another architecture change like that to happen? Or are there other things that will determine where AI is going? 
I really hope that the Transformer is not the last architecture. And there's certainly been a lot of refinement since like the initial vanilla original Transformer. There's been a lot of improvement, but I, I don't know how far of a leap the final architecture will be from the initial one. There might be features like a uh, mixture of experts where you have these large, sparse, distributed distributed systems. But those components will probably still look a lot like a transformer. I think there's now emerging questions of how important is attention really? How much of it do you need? At the moment, we just stack the same layer on top of itself many, many, many times. And an attention layer is always a part of that. Does that need to be the case? Uh, can we rip out half of those attentions and save that compute? I think those are questions that are emerging today. I really hope there's some sort of, there's another big Eureka moment where we just find something drastically, drastically better, more efficient, more scalable, more etc. I really hope this isn't just it because that would be intellectually like really boring. Um, so I hope that we do do something better and I hope that people continue to work on that part of the stack and continue to do exploration in architecture space. Yeah, I mean, I'd love for it to be another one and, and invent it one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Whoever gets to do that will have a lot of fun with it, and there'll be a lot of impact. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, another angle this in principle could come from is if ever we understand the human brain better and how that is architected in detail, how it functions in detail, then it'll be very interesting to see what, what architecture is being used there compared to what we've done so far in uh artificial intelligence yeah yeah if you talk to jeff hinton that's definitely been like the guiding inspiration for him yeah his like his recent work like the forward forward thing i think he's coming close to something really really fascinating and biologically plausible and potentially enables efficiency gains right like forward forward lets you lets you pipeline much more easily uh than having to block on a backwards path i think having a bottoms up approach of like extremely rigorously adhering to biology this like known working system is probably too strict um but the tact that jeff has taken in terms of like being flexible and being willing to take inspiration without strictly adhering to it and having it look like and you know it's like a you know a shadow of this known working system that takes a lot of inspiration from it i think that's an extremely effective strategy definitely Jeff has made it very effective when he's executing on it. It's always, always really in inspiring to read his work and chat with him. It's amazing. When he was on the podcast, by the way, he said um, that he thought we're, we're too rigid in thinking that we should be able to read out the weights. You know, we should just train a neural network and not even assume we can access the weights and be able to copy it. Of course, in production, it'd be kind of rough if you couldn't copy it onto another machine. It's you know, one of those hidden assumptions we make that, that constrains our thinking. That's so fascinating. You're fascinating. I, uh, I'm excited for the 30 papers that try to interpret that statement and uh, bring it into practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talking about being inspired, um, I'm curious. When you were a little kid, what got you excited day to day and how did that maybe lead to being an AI researcher and entrepreneur now? I grew up in like the middle of the woods in Ontario uh, on, a, on a maple farm. So I had a very Canadian upbringing, which is great. But the downside is like I didn't have access to internet 
we still don't really like i bought my parents starlink because it's the best that exists but so i I grew up without a lot of access to stuff that my friends had and I, i think that made it that made it more appealing because it was this kind of distant thing that everyone else had access to and it was just so magical and we did have a computer at home with dial up and whatever and so with that computer i just knew i'm going to make the most of that as i possibly can i'm going to stretch it to its limit and so eventually that forces you to learn how to code and really dive deep and understand how the thing works and how to make it work better for you so i think from a from a very early age as a product of being held back from accessing the cool stuff that my friends had access to it just forced me into I'm going to know this better than anyone. And I'm going to squeeze as much performance out of this thing as I can. So then, you know, I developed the ability to do a little bit of coding and kind of found found a passion for it. And this was right around the time that everyone was getting onto the internet in rural communities. Um, and so lots of stores needed web pages and spots on Google Maps and blah, blah, blah. And so spun up a little business to help my local town of 10,000 people bring their businesses onto the internet. And I charged them what now feels like outrageous amounts of money for the simple stuff that I was doing. But at the time, I think it was fair and it was under market, actually. And so that was my first experience with entrepreneurship and having customers. And um, I fell in love with it. Like It was just so much fun. It was so nice being able to help folks with their businesses, with their dreams, um, help them scale up, help them uh, become more visible. Yeah, that was a really good experience. I think I've always known that I wanted to build a business. I think I kind of just fell into it as a product of uh, my environment. People needed websites in Brighton, Ontario. And so I had to serve that need. <laughs> but it's carried forward. It's a beautiful story. I love it. Now, thinking about kids, students trying to get into their own career path today, and let's say, especially in artificial intelligence, do you have any suggestions for them? How to get started? What's the best path or what are some good paths? I think it really depends on what your interests are and where you want to intervene on the stack, where you want to spend your time. If you want to be a researcher and you want to get very low level, you need to start (laughs) learning uh, multivariate calculus and linear algebra and, you know, maybe dip your toes into some optimization theory and then work your way up into neural nets and ML and just be reading papers. That was a path I took. And I remember at U of T, by the way, Mike Volpe from Index, he makes fun of me religiously for this. Um, at U of T, I would go to the gym with a stack of papers and in between sets, <laughs> be reading, <laughs> taking notes on academic papers, which in hindsight is like incredibly embarrassing. But at the time, it was just pragmatic. It was just like in between classes, I have my workout time. I, in between sets, I'm just sitting there. I'm doing nothing. I'm just breathing. Um, I'm going to fill it with learning about papers. I was reading, you know, the neural Turing machine and the LSTM paper, that type of stuff. And so I, I think you need that kind of maniacal obsession with the material and you really need to like spend the time. It's going to be hard. Like initially when you start reading papers, you're not going to understand a single word in that thing. And you're, you're going to have to, you know, to understand that word, okay, you stop and now you go read another paper to teach you about that. And now, okay, now I can continue. It's going to take you days and days, weeks and weeks to read one paper. But eventually, you know, you'll learn. And so you'll come out the other side of it, extremely familiar with the material and able to actually contribute new ideas. So anyway, for research, I think really just dive into the material, be maniacal about it. For product, uh, it's another level of the stack that you can intervene at. 
I would say almost like, don't waste your time on the details down there. Really focus on what's an exciting product. Really understand the technology that's being exposed today, like large language models in general, um, and think about what does the world need that this technology enables that doesn't exist today, and develop an intimate understanding of market needs relative to the technology that you can build on top of. Um, spend your time there, spend your time testing hypothesis, speaking to potential customers, and be maniacal about, about that piece. But yeah, I think the route in at each level is, is very different. So it's very interesting because in your, your case then, you met all the customers, setting them up on the internet so they could stores could be more successful in, in your town. And at the same time, you have the intellectual curiosity to work through all the AI papers excruciating pain pretty much initially when you read the first paper because they reference to so many others. It's a, it's a blow up of things you have to look at before you can understand one, but then over time, of course, it pays off. It's so, yeah. I, I never knew this about you, about your uh, early entrepreneurship. It's, uh, it's a really fun story. Yeah, it was uh, AdGo, which is A-D-G-O. Um, I still have customers, actually. I still maintain their websites. I still have, uh, I'm still hosting. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, they reach out being like, Aiden, my website's down. What do I do? So I don't charge them any money these days. Uh, it's all pro bono. That's so interesting. Well, Aiden, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Really inspiring yeah. to hear your story. Um, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, no, thank you so much. So good to catch up. If you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did, please give us a thumbs up leave a comment, put a rating. It'll help other people find the show. Thank you.